Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. We have just returned from our Bible school, and um, that was, what, I don't know, 15 hours of letting the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the reality of the Holy Trinity. It was a marvelous time. And um, the Lord has refreshed me to be able to sit here and talk to you now. I want to take the next few weeks in going through the book of Ruth. You know that little book sandwiched between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And it's, it's full of um, insights into Jesus and actually takes a big part in the coming of Jesus. And um, I want to take the first chapter tonight, but I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell you the story, and you can read it later yourself. Enough, let's go to verse 19. That sort of sums it up. Verse 19 of Ruth and chapter 1. So they both, that is Naomi and Ruth, they both went until they came to Bethlehem. When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me? The Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In coming to the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, we are coming right into the method by which God speaks to us. Have you noticed that most of the Bible comes to us in the form of stories? Stories are very ordinary people under very ordinary circumstances that sometimes turn into very extraordinary circumstances. And in those stories of very ordinary people, God reveals himself. So much of what we know of God and all his love and how he works is just spun out for us in homey stories of ordinary people. And he reveals himself in the stories, not only to the characters of the story, but to us. They are stories of journeys in life, not always geographical, but sometimes. Like in this case, it's a movement from Bethlehem to Moab, from Moab to Bethlehem. But in those journeys, there are spiritual journeys going on. And the Lord is working in the people and through the people, even though they were absolutely not aware of what he was doing. Okay, it's the same with us, same with us. As we come to this book, I want to tell you in advance, it's a story of country folk, very country folk. Um, You could say as you walk through the book of Ruth, you probably can hear sheep bleating. It begins, we just read it, they came there at the beginning of the barley harvest, when the whole, it says city, but really we would call it little more than a village, um, when the whole village becomes involved in the harvest, 
we, we also read there, if you noticed it, of marketplace gossip, you know, when the whole come together, mostly the women in the marketplace buying and selling their goods, and they're all yakking to each other, as villagers do. Here in Bandera, where I live, it's not much bigger than Bethlehem, and it's the post office. Everybody meets at the post office, and you hear all the gossip, and you hear all the babies born, and all the marriages. It's, it's the marketplace in a country town. In this book, you'll meet with peasants who live just above poverty level. You'll also meet rich ranchers. You'll also meet the equivalent of the Old Testament to food stamps and welfare. And you'll also meet love and romance and marriage. I mean, it's a jolly story. And God is in the middle of it all, working in everybody, though they do not know it or realize it. The book of Ruth takes place in the book of Judges. What do I mean by that? It's a little book that's a complete story, but actually it took place back in the previous book. Uh, You could take it and fit it into about chapter 6 of Judges. The story of Gideon, well, while all that was happening with Gideon, there's this little family in Bethlehem that all this is happening to them. And and that was, it gives us the background. If you remember the story of Gideon, it was when uh, some thugs, there's nothing more than that, they were called Midianites, and they would come month after month, year after year, swooping down upon these people and, and destroying their land, stealing their crops, until the people of Israel were reduced to famine and poverty. And, and that was when this all began in the book of Ruth. Um, the ravaged countryside, food scarce, and no clear voice from God, no leader speaking a thus says the Lord. Okay, they lived in the land of Canaan, which over the years is going to be called the land of Israel. And they lived in the southern part of Israel in what was called the tribe of Judah. And that is where Jerusalem was. And just five miles or so outside of Jerusalem is the little crossroads village of Bethlehem. And that is where this all takes place. All takes place in the village of Bethlehem. Okay. I said they were in the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel. You've got to understand, especially here, because we're, we're knee-deep here in the culture of the most ancient uh, peoples of Israel, way back there in the beginning of the Old Testament. And so they, they were very aware of the fact that God gave to them this land. And you probably heard that before, but... I want to emphasize, I mean, he literally gave it to them. That's what you'll find in the book of Joshua, where every family in Israel was given a piece of land. So there were no realtors in Israel. I think they couldn't sell their land because it was given to them by God. It was theirs by divine gift. And and therefore, um, you just couldn't buy and sell it. And and in in that place is where the glory of God, the presence of God, was to be made known to his people. And, And it would be in that land that had been given, you know, inch by inch to the people, its boundaries, in that land the Lord would create a people and a people through whom the message of his love would come, his covenant. And through this people, they would bring Messiah Jesus into the world. And so the land plays a tremendous place in the Old Testament. It wasn't just their address. It wasn't just the place where all these people lived. It was the place in which God said, here is where I'm going to achieve my purpose. Here is where Messiah will come. 
And because he'd given them the land, and within it he'd given everybody their piece of land, well, it was God said, I'll look after you. You're not just living here because you happen to like the scenery. I've given you this land, and therefore I will keep you in this land. I'll protect you in this land. I'll provide for you in this land. That, that was the meaning of the land back in Old Testament times. And so when they were attacked by enemies or famine came to the land, it was an opportunity to trust God. Who You, you said you gave us this land. Now we look to you for the wisdom and the strength to protect. And also we look to you for provision. It was in the land. Now, in this land, in the little crossroads village of Bethlehem, we meet the family. And the husband was called Elimelech. Now, I think you might know, if you've been around these um, Tuesday nights for a while, you, you might know that the people in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, their names... A were little sentences. It doesn't sound like that to us. We just hear the blur of sound. But if you spoke Hebrew, these are little sentences. And they were given names that described their identity and described their destiny. It will be this message that you bring as you grow. And so they they lived with their names almost as a prophecy of who they were, certainly a window to their soul. And they who bore the name understood their name, described their destiny in God. It's a big thing, very different to the way we name ourselves today. And so it gives us the names of these people. It's very important to know what kind of people, what kind of family they came from. It's all wrapped up in how they named their children. So the name of the husband was Elimelech. Now, Elimelech uh, tells me a lot about this man and a lot about his family who gave him the name. The name means, translated into English, God is my king. God is my king. And, and and so he, he stands as one who understands. It's been with him since he first understood his name, that he, he was the one who served God, who was the king of his life, a man of faith, a man who trusted God's covenant. And we know um, from the rest of the story as it unfolds that this was... I suppose today we would say an old family. You know, they're, they're, they're somewhat, if you trace the ancestors, they go all the way back to the very founding fathers of, of this part of the country. Uh, you could say they were aristocrats in the Bethlehem peasant world, distinguished person, um, and, and they had money. And I think today, would you understand me if I said it was old money? That is, it had been passed on. It was inheritance on top of inheritance. That, that's Elimelech. And he marries this lady called Naomi. And her name, it means pleasant. It means delight. Pleasant and delight. It means lovely. It means gracious. It was a name that described the joy of the covenant people. Well, it sounds good off on a good foot. His people who, whose names reflect their walking in covenant with God. Then they had two sons. And I'm going to mention it. I really don't want to go there beyond just mentioning it. The, the first one was called Marlon, but now this is, this is not good. Because Marlon means weak and sickly. Now, now, why would you name a child weak and sickly? I mean, it meant every time you called the little chap, you called, come here, weak and sickly. Um, what, what's going on? 
it would indicate that from birth he was weak and sickly and they never got around to actually naming him maybe because they didn't think he would live very long i don't know and as i say i'm not going there except to say that probably just because he was weak and sickly he sort of got dubbed with the name weak and sickly sickly little chap but things don't get any better. Chilion was his younger brother. And Chilion, it means actually pining away. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing we would say in English, what about um, he's not going to make it. Maybe they were both a couple of sickly children. Maybe Chilion was a whining little kid and was pining. Um... <sighs> It's the kind of thing you, when you address, do, 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 do you have it where you live, you know, um, there, there's one of the family and you say, you know, poor Jane, there's all your poor Jane or, or poor Jack. They, they never talk about their positives. There's always a poor kid. It, it, this was, a, it's, it's like a chill negative has come into the family. Well, on top of that, whatever that really is, a famine comes into the land, as I said, probably brought on by the ravaged countryside after the Midianites went through in chapter 6 of Judges. And along with famine, there comes fear. Fear, we're going to die, we're not going to make it. And so common sense said, get out of here. You got the money? Pack up, leave. And when all this famine is over and all the trouble's gone, you can come back. Well, that would be common sense. But what did I just say? In that land where it was God's gift every square inch, and with every square inch, God says, I'll look after you. And so... It was understood by the persons of faith in Israel that in, in such days of famine and the like, you stayed and you watched as God wondrously took care of you. But no, not this family. Elimelech says, we are out of here and we're going to Moab until things get better. What is Moab? Where is Moab? Well, I can tell you where it was. Moab doesn't exist today. But if you go down, um, get a map if you're really interested in this. And Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, which is way at the southern end of Israel. You know, just if you're, you're, you're standing looking south, then to your right is Egypt, and over to your left is the Dead Sea. And just at the bottom of the Dead Sea... And on the other side of the Dead Sea was the land of Moab. Today it would be Saudi Arabia um, and a bit of Jordan. And, and, and it's there, the bottom of the Dead Sea, Moab. It, it's not a nice place to go to. They weren't very friendly toward the people of Israel. And in those days everything centered around the God you worshipped. And they certainly didn't worship the God who had revealed himself to Abraham. No, no. They worshipped a God, a ghastly creature, they called Chemosh. And Chemosh was the God, well, you could say he was the God of murder. He was the God who lusted after blood, but specifically the blood of children. You could say that Chemosh is the god worshipped by the abortionists because in order to please this creature, this demon god, they had to bring their little children and sacrifice them to Chemosh. Hideous. Hideous. And also on top of that, it was mixed in with Baal worship which was worshipping sex and worshipping greed. I have to ask at this point, hold it, hold it, why on earth would persons who obviously 
knew the covenant God, our Lord God of the Old Testament. They, they knew him. Their names dictated where they stood with him. And yet they're going to Moab just because there's a famine and they can't trust God to look after them there. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, go to Moab. You're going to be spiritually, mentally, emotionally polluted. You can't help it. It's on every street corner. It's the atmosphere. It's the culture. It's the way people think. It's the way they talk. It, oh. Anyway, while they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. And Naomi is left as a widow. That, that's tough. I mean, it's bad enough the husband dies. But in that culture, to be a widow, you were on your own in a very real way. Dangerous, actually. But the two boys marry two Moabite girls. One was Oprah and the other was Ruth. And as time passes, the two boys die. Finally, their names catch up with them, and they die. And so now we have Naomi, the mother-in-law widow, with two daughters-in-law widows who are Moabites. They, they speak, you know, Moabite. They, they spoke, they could speak Hebrew, but it would be accented you know and, and and they were a, a slightly different color to the israelites uh, enough to say that a moabite would stand out like a sore thumb in israel but here they are and we've got three women now on their own in a desperate situation it's been 10 years since Naomi came with her whole family into Moab. And now she feels stripped of everything, lost her husband, lost her sons, lost everything. There's nothing left. Sold everything in order to exist because, you see, in those days, a woman couldn't go and get a job. All Naomi knew to do, she'd heard through the grapevine that things were better in Bethlehem these days. And so she decides to return home. Ha! Oh, she had left. And the word there in chapter 1 of Ruth is she left full. Oh, she was full. I mean, as I said, she was one of the leading families in Bethlehem. She was full. She had a husband, a very important husband. And she had two sons. And even though weak and sickly, she had that family. And they're going and they're going to make it in Moab. Well, that was 10 years ago. Now she's returning home almost as a refugee. She, she's got nothing. I mean, all her possessions she could carry in a sack on her back. And, and, and along with her come the two girls. Probably the idea was they would just come with her to protect her until she got to the border. And then, you know, kiss her goodbye, go back to Moab. But here they are. And I want you to look at it. I want you to feel it. Three women who look as if they're at the end of their rope. They're, they're one older woman, two younger women. They carry sacks on their back, which is all their possessions. And they're tramping toward the land of Canaan. And at the border, Naomi embraces them. She blesses them in the name of the Lord, which tells me her faith at least was that much still intact. But uh, she says, now go home, go home. You, you don't want to come any further with me. And she argues with them and the, the one is convinced and she turns around and with lots of wailing, she returns and see her going down the road with a pack on her back. And now 
Naomi is left with Ruth. And she tells Ruth, please go home. I've got nothing for you. I'm destitute. All I've got is the bit of land that I left 10 years ago. I I don't know what the future holds. And Ruth makes a covenant oath and says that she will stay with Naomi until death because she is accepting the God of Naomi as her God. She had seen something in the life of Naomi, in the life probably of her husband, that she, she wanted this God. She was done with Chemosh, and she wanted it. And so, reluctantly, Naomi says, you can come with me. But the, the, Naomi is angry. There, there's a certain, what can I say, a darkness, a cloak of darkness has descended upon Naomi from the woman who came across the border to the one who's now returning. It it seems that as she came to the border, she remembers and she remembers bitterly, bitterly. She remembers all that's happened and her mentality is God has made war against me. God has been against me at every step. I've lost everything, and it's God's fault. And now this woman, Ruth, insists on coming back with me to share my misfortunes. But she comes, and they cross the border, and they come on their way to Bethlehem. And as they come into Bethlehem, The woman of Bethlehem, it makes a special point of that, the woman of Bethlehem, they're all in the marketplace as usual, and they they look at her, and they, they know who it is, but they said, who is this? What has happened to you? You're not the woman that left. You're not the family that left. What happened? Remember in those days, there was no phones, no cell phones, no texting. No emails, no mail. So they had to be rapidly caught up. But who is this? Look at her. Look at the strained look on her face. You know how it is when someone has been through hell and back and it shows in their face. Drawn lines have now etched into her face. And there's that look of anger around her thin, angry lips. Do you notice how our lips change when we settle into anger? And her hair is gray and straggly around her shoulders, and she's bent over. She's not the fine woman that marched out of Bethlehem ten years before. And Naomi... And of course, remember, everybody understood what I just said a few minutes ago about names. I mean, that was the culture, deep in the culture. And they had addressed Naomi, Naomi, what has happened? And she spits it back. Do not call me Naomi. That is, do not call me pleasant. My life is not pleasant. Don't call me delightful. There's no delight. There's no joy. There's no grace left in my life. Don't call me Naomi. I am no longer to be identified with joy. That's not my identity. I'm giving myself a new identity. I've given myself a new name. Call me Mara. And Mara. Mara means bitter. You know, it's something that you'd put in your mouth and it's so bitter you screw up your face and spit it out. Bitter! She says, call me Mara. That's the word. It's a word that's got... You can know, it's a word of taste. It's a word of horror, disgust. You. She said, because you call me... Call me now. It's my new name, Bitterness. Because... God has dealt bitterly with me. All my working with God in the last ten years, he's made me to drink poison. He's taken away everything I have. Oh, boy. 
that didn't begin in Bethlehem. I mean, she spits it out in the marketplace of Bethlehem, but believe me, it didn't begin there. That had begun to fester inside of her when her husband died. And she stood at that graveside in its beginning. If you're a God of covenant love, if you love me, what's this about? But then, when her sons die, and now there's three graves in a foreign country, by that time, she's already formulating, I have a new identity. My identity is I'm a widow. My identity is my husband was snatched from me. My identity is my sons were taken. And it's all God's fault. God did it. If God be the God he says he is, why would he do this to me? The name is changing. Her identity, she can no longer easily say Naomi. Pleasant, beautiful, delightful. No, 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 that's not me. Bitter, bitter. And whenever she did address God, it was why, why, why? You've abandoned me. What is bitter? I mean, it's, we know, bitterness, resentment. You know those words. It means a long-standing, unresolved resentment that refuses to be healed. You know, something happened. It could have been as simple as somebody said something. Somebody did something, or a great loss, or somebody abused you. And you couldn't? Well, because that's not true. Let's, let's be honest. This is the time for honesty. You wouldn't forgive the people who did it, said it who were involved in the abuse, you wouldn't forgive them. You said some things cannot be forgiven and this is one of them. And behind the people, behind whatever was done, bitterness sees God. And and, and I resent God. It always begins with, if he loves me, then why? Why did he let that happen to me? And as the bitterness grows, it, 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 it's grown by nourish, nourish, nourishing. It, it's nurtured. It, it's as if we, we hold it tight. We're not going to let anybody take it away from us. We keep it warm. Why or how? I can tell you the how. I don't know the why. The why doesn't make sense. Because it is replaying the event over and over and over again. It's going back and, and seeing what was done. It's, it's taking the scab of the wound and letting it bleed all over again with pain and hurt and tears. and. Huh. We're not going to let that go. And bitterness has some kind of irrationality to it, in that it doesn't matter what anyone says, you don't want to hear it. You are identified by your abuse. You describe yourself in terms of the pain and the hurt. And it spills over into your life so that every word you say, even your hopes for the future, your dreams, and it's all brought to a stop. It's as if you took that event and you frame-freezed it. There it is. It's like in the Olympics you see a a picture of, of someone that's right in the act in the high jump, and there they are flying through the air. 
And the picture is taken, and there they are frozen in time. Well, that's it. We, we see this event, and we freeze it, and that's it. It's when life ended. Now, all of what we call life today has got to somehow relate to that. It's, it's their fault. Everything that goes wrong in my life, it's because of that. I become the victim of that. We brood over it. We, have, we brood on, on, on the loss, the abuse, the hurt. And of course it deeply affects us. Mentally, emotionally, but also physically because all of that negative thought about that produces poison in our body, literal poison that can be measured. What is it? Determined to order our life around that horrific event? Resentment toward God? And we, 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 we've worked it out, what he should have done, but he didn't. What he could have done, but he didn't. And always that nagging, if he loved me, if, if, if he did, then this wouldn't have happened. What, listen to me very carefully here, what such a person, and Naomi is one of them, right in our face tonight, but she defined God through the lens of what happened to her. Did you hear me? Bitterness defines who God is by what happens to us. But you see, God, God is not defined by our circumstances. He joins us in the circumstances to be love and wisdom and strength to walk us through them and to suck those circumstances into his love purpose. But the bitter person sees themselves as the victim of God who abandoned them when they needed him most. Interesting, in this chapter, she says, um, see if I can quickly find it. Um, she, she blames God all the way through, right? I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But further back, it says when she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now, the Almighty, I, I don't know why it's translated the Almighty, and it is so consistently. Um, the word in the Hebrew is Shaddai, and you might have heard of El Shaddai. It, it, the, the word Shaddai, if you pull it apart and it means the nourisher. In fact, in the Hebrew language, shad is breast. And so there is a sense in which God is described as the breasted one, the one at whose breast I am suckled, where I am nourished and strengthened, and he's everything I need him to be. She, she uses that term to describe God here. And, and she is saying, the, the one who swore to nourish me ha has fed me poison. I come back bitter, and, and, and bitter now colors all of my life. It, it's like as if you colored the windows of your house red, so that now you look out and everything looks red. So it is, I look through the lens of what has happened to me, through the lens of how I interpret God. I, I, and I define now my future by my past. Call me Mara. I'm a woman that's been kicked in the face by God. He's dealt bitterly with me. You know those people... It's illegal to be happy around them, you know. If you speak of joy, if you speak of peace, 
If you speak of a living God, there's a glare they give you. It's illegal. Their name, their identity, their energy. He says, I, I, I've, I've dealt with this. God is against us, so don't talk to me about anything else. What shall we say to Naomi? What are you going to say? Oh, I... Naomi, I deeply feel your pain. The loss that you had in Moab, the, the loss of everything. You're now standing in a culture which has no place for a widow or a single woman. I, yeah, I, I, I identify with your pain. But on the other hand, I have to tell you that you are in the grip of a great deception. Yet you are listening to the liar who is the slanderer of God. The lie interprets and defines God by circumstances. And the lie assures you of a hopeless future. The truth, Naomi, you said the word Shaddai, love, caring love, strengthening love. Circumstances, they happen. For many reasons, they happen. God is not the puppet master. He's not the one who makes things happen or not happen. Rather, he's the one who joins you in the circumstance and in the circumstance puts his arms around you of love and strengthens you and assures you of working this into his incredible plan. He joins us in our brokenness. He joins us even in our mistakes and sins. He joins us. He joins us in the, if only I had, if only I hadn't. He joins us and works out his redemptive love purposes. That's God. Only you turned away from him, Naomi, maybe not hardly realizing it, but you turned away and you centered on the circumstance and then you looked at God through the circumstance. You defined him by the circumstance instead of letting him be the love that walked you through it. Remember Joseph, the total reverse of this, when, when every circumstance that a human could think of uh, happened to him would kill some people. And his response was, speaking to his abusers, he said, you meant it for evil. God means it for good. I used to go to Cape Cod, uh, that's for those of you listening outside of the U.S., that's on the eastern, northeastern part of the U.S., and, and a, a lot of um, artists go there, a lot of other people too, but artists, and, and I met up with this little group, three or four artists, and, and they challenged each other constantly, and they, they would go along the beach and they would pick up what had been thrown up on the beach by the Atlantic waters, and especially after a storm. And as they went along the beach, you know, you, you find bits and pieces. And I remember, the, you know, the, there's a doll, and you'd get just their head, uh, and it's been smashed, and here's something else that once was a beautiful little box, but it was hurled against the rocks and so on. All these bits and pieces that have been thrown up onto the beach. And here's the branch of a tree, but it's been in the water so long, through so many tides and winds and storms, that it's now smoothed out. Everything. And there it lays on the beach as if the, the final resting place of broken things, broken dreams. People once loved that box and used it. Little girl once nursed that little doll in her hands and it's all now smashed to pieces. Broken dreams, broken pieces. And these artists would pick up all this stuff and they would go back 
and one of them would be chosen. Here's the, here it is, all the pile of junk and trash and broken things. And his challenge was to make out of it something beautiful, some picture, some putting together of all those bits and pieces. And they did. And I saw some of the results of it. It was amazing. And I immediately thought of this God who is love that comes and picks up the broken, smashed pieces of our lives and he puts it together in a beautiful piece of art. That's our God. Do not find your identity in what has happened to you. You find your identity in the God who is with you and in you inside what happens to you. Oh, Naomi, don't you remember you are a covenant person? In Exodus 19, God said of you and your kind, you who live in the land of Judah, he said you are his treasure, you are his special person. He said in Deuteronomy 28 to you and your people that he would bless you and bless you in your going out and bless you in your coming in. And he stands true to his word. But we're blind to that as we look at circumstances and let circumstances dictate to us the lie of who God is. Psalm 27 said, I would have despaired unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Your name is pleasant. Your name is delightful, not because all pleasant things happen to you, but because he who is ultimate beauty and pleasantness and delightfulness is with you and shapes and fashions your life. But the gospel, if we carry this through to the New Testament, the ultimate revelation of God what, what is the incarnation? What is the gospel? What is Christianity? It's the announcement that God so loved us. He came to join us in the pit of darkness, the sewer that we called life. God stood in our shoes in the person of Jesus. He experienced every detail of our life. And as he comes to his suffering and death, he entered into every abuse known to human. He was forsaken by his friends. He was betrayed by one closest to him. He was mentally abused, emotionally. He was physically abused. I would say also he was sexually abused, for he was stripped naked before they hung him on the cross to have the crowd laugh at him. His closest friends let him down. And on the cross, the last thing he heard before death was the roll of the dice as they sold his clothes, or rather gambled for his clothes. He stood where we stood. He took every mistake. He took every error. He took every sin. He took our grief and our sorrow. He took our Moab and he took it to death and when he rose from the dead he declared to us that he now is the source of life and joy and peace to us he is your life and the scripture says he turns our mourning into dancing he gives us beauty for the ashes of a funeral so now what do I say to Naomi? Stop. This, this meandering on, defining your life by something that happened in the past. Change your name back to Naomi and do so through the grace and love of God toward you. Do so now understanding that name better than ever before. That you're not pleasant and delightful because pleasant and delightful things happen to you, but because your God is the one who declares you pleasant and delightful and is your strength and your life and your light. He embraces you with his love in the midst of all. Name yourself according to who he is, who is your life and dwells within you. 
and define your future not by the past, but you define your future by Christ who is your life. How could Naomi ever know what was going on? <laughs> she said, I went out full and I come back empty. Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. Do you know what you did? I mean, do you know, Naomi, that, what? <laughs> How many thousand, nearly 4,000 years later, some chap is going to be talking about this? I mean, can you imagine what you did, Naomi? All you say is, I lost everything in Moab. Yes, I know. And as I said, I, I feel the pain of that, and the Lord is moved with compassion for you. I know that. But do you realize, you said you came back empty. Who's this girl walking beside you? Well, she's just, just my daughter-in-law, and I have no idea how she's going to find a living. Do you realize, Naomi, that your mission, totally unknown to you, was to bring her from Moab across the border into Bethlehem? Did you know that? Did you know that? She, she's not just your daughter-in-law, Naomi. It was your divine mission. You've got to get a hold of this girl to bring her back to Bethlehem. Because, you see, <laughs> I, I know it's, it's so hard to understand, but this girl, a Moabitess, who's looked upon with suspicion by everybody in Bethlehem, you know, can't trust a Moabite. From, from the land where they worship Chemosh. This, this girl who is determined to stay with you because she wants your God as her God. D do you realize that this girl is going to marry one of your relatives, Naomi? And they're going to have a little boy. You are going to be the delighted grandmother of little Obed. And did you know, Naomi, that when Obed grows, he's going to get married, and he's going to have a son called Jesse. And did you know, you will be the great grandmother of Jesse, but you'll be the great-grandmother of one of Jesse's sons called David. And did you know, Naomi, that the ultimate person in David's genealogy will be called Jesus? And did you know... Naomi, that when Matthew comes to write his gospel, in chapter 1, he will begin to say, all the people who are in the genealogy of Jesus, and it will be there, right there. Ruth, Ruth, do you realize, Naomi, this kid you brought across the border carries the genes that will be passed on and bring forth Jesus into the world. Do you realize, Naomi, that you are responsible for this fragile piece of thread that connects the dots of salvation? Salvation of the world hinges on what you just did, Naomi. And you're going to be caught up in the joy of that before this book's through. Oh, do you know?
Do you have a clue what God's doing with you today? Do you have any idea of your influence in your little tiny minuscule world? Did you know? I I hardly, personally, I hardly fit that kind of genealogy. But I tell you this, I, I was a, a kid playing on the streets, on the River Thames in London. I'd never heard of the Bible. I'd never heard the name of Jesus. I thought it was a curse word. And neighbors, just very ordinary people, said that they wanted to take me to Sunday school. And because there was nothing much better to do on a Sunday, I went and my parents let them take me. And I heard the name of Jesus and I heard of salvation. And that was the beginning of my knowing Jesus. And sometimes I have looked out across crowds of tens of thousands of people in an audience as I'm preaching, and I remember that couple. Did they have a clue of what they were doing when they took a hold of that grubby little hand and tugged me to Sunday school? And did my Sunday school teacher have a clue that what he said was going to affect the lives literally of millions. I've had a chance to go back to that Sunday school teacher and tell him that, but for him, who knows? He certainly stands invisibly with me right now and shares in, in my joy at being able to share the gospel with you. Do, you. do you get what I'm saying? You've no idea. You don't have a clue. We zero in on some circumstance, terrible indeed as the circumstance might be, and we lose sight of God. We lose sight of his purpose. We lose sight of all. Stop. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Stop. And see the God of infinite love who is revealed to us in and through Jesus. And recognize we can only understand life. We can only find our identity not in the circumstances but in the God who joins us in those circumstances and walks us through with triumph. Well, there it is. I suppose that's the introduction to the book of Ruth. Because this is where the fun begins. How two women, destitute, on the edge of... I mean, they've already lost everything, but now they're on the edge of losing everything. And to know that the whole of salvation, now, at that point in history, hangs upon those two women. Hmm. So if you are a woman and you feel that you are less than insignificant and if you are presently mulling over the loss of much or even everything, understand that this God we worship delights in taking a woman and making her the link that brings salvation to so many and brings joy into her own life and to the world. So we will come back to see what happens with Ruth. But until then, stop, put off bitterness and resentment, receive the forgiveness and incidentally, the word forgiveness, it means to flow away from. That's another whole hour, actually. But just, you can understand this. The word forgiveness means to send away, let something flow away from you. 
And when I say sin, that word is a lot bigger than what many times it's portrayed to be. This is, sin is not simply some terrible thing you did. Um, sin includes our mistakes. Sin includes all of the if only so help me. It includes all the errors of judgment. It includes the mess-ups of life. It includes the grief and the sorrow. And through Jesus Christ, he shed blood. He said, your, your sins are forgiven. That is, your sins, your errors, your mistakes, your brokenness, your grief and your sorrow flows away from you. And you are left seated in the love of God who takes you by the hand, who hugs you with his compassion and said, let's walk on from here into the light. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that blessing right now encompass you, open your eyes, assure your hearts, and bring you to peace and joy and your true identity in Jesus Christ the Lord. So I now bless you, and that is the way it is.